Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. The show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am. And yeah, I'm Nick Pendergrass, the host for today. I wanted to, before we get into our show, I wanted to thank Sally for another edition of Out of the Pan. Make sure you check out Out of the Pan every Sunday, 12 till 1. And yeah, check that out via 855am or on the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. So today um, I'm going to do a recap of the Animal Nationalisms Conference, which I attended on Friday, and I'm joined, uh, my co-host today is my partner Katie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And yeah, Adam couldn't make it in today. Yeah, so I've locked him in a closet because he's such a mansplainer. And um, I've, yeah, I'm basically, I'm taking over. Because two men speaking to each other should not be allowed. We do have a talk from Esther Lown on the show as well, uh, even if it was me and Adam today. Adam so. is a great feminist ally. I am, of yeah. course, completely joking. Mm-hmm. Um, had, he has, he's had trouble getting out to um, Melbourne or Nam today. So I'm really happy to, to step in, having mm-hmm. been um, doing radio with Nick and podcasting for quite a while. So... Mm-hmm comes quite naturally to me save the day and i um yeah i don't think adam would mind us mentioning that he uh had his car ran out of battery because he had the boot open for his dog so for his dog to lie in and yeah and snuggle in the sun it it is an animal related reason why he can't be here today so we'll we'll definitely uh accept that so we're gonna dog dad isn't he yeah he is yep we're gonna do a recap of the of that conference talk about some of the key themes and yeah some of the lessons for activists uh katie wasn't there i I was though so i'll give that and Katie's got some thoughts on these issues as well. Yeah, read out some of the quotes. You don't like to do that so much. No, exactly. So you're going to give a recap some of the, um, yeah, some sort of take-home messages for activists. And we're also going to play a talk, as I mentioned, by Esther Lown from the University of Wollongong. She's talking about vegan washing Israel's dirty laundry, question mark, animal politics and nationalism in Palestine, Israel. So Such yeah. a good title. Yeah, it is good, yeah. Uh, so really interesting talk and looking at, obviously, Israel-Palestine uh, is such a... Um, yeah, such a complex context in terms of humans and how does mm. animal advocacy and how do animals fit into that? And I guess in terms of the conference in general, which we're talking about a little bit, um, it was called Animal Nationalism's Multi-Species Cultural Politics, Race and Nation Unbuilding Narratives. And the um, un was in brackets, In brackets, yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah, building and unbuilding narratives. And so from now on, we'll just call it Animal Nationalism. So I mm-hmm. think that's much more straightforward. Sure. But basically, the, the, you know, obviously people spoke on a wide range of issues, but I'd say the general theme was about how ideas of nationalism and racism are projected onto animals and also how animals affected by nationalism, racism, that kind mm. of thing. So these inter- interconnections between between uh, these different issues. It was put on by the Deakin Critical Animal Studies Network, and that is run by Yamini Narayanan and Adam Candelini, the host who can't be here today, but usually joins me on these shows. Um, And yeah, I thought maybe Katie could read this. So this is from Mm. the website, then I'll elaborate a bit more about what Critical Animal Studies is about in general, but this is from their website. So the Deakin Critical Animal Studies Network aims to create a conceptual, reflective and empirical academic activist space 
wherein animals are recognised as subjects and agents in scholarship, as social and political members, actors and stakeholders in our co-produced and co-shared planetary worlds. Mm-hmm. So that's what. What it's, the heck does that mean? Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to like translate. And obviously, Especially for a non-academic like yeah. myself. So that that is pitched at an academic audience, obviously. So it's it's through Deakin University. It's, it's academics. It's scholars. But it is, uh, yeah. They mention the am academic and activist space, and I wanted to touch on that as well. And talking about that in terms of not just this conference, but also um, the Institute for Critical Animal Studies, which I'm involved with, which isn't the same thing, but is doing very similar things. And I think a key part of it is that link between academia and activism. So one thing I spoke about in my talk, I spoke at the conference as well, was about um, this idea of making conferences accessible. Mm -hmm. So this was a free conference, which is great. Um, And I was mentioning that academics like me, sessional academics, like um, casual, uh, only have short-term contracts, which is... You know, increasingly, academics uh, in these spaces where they don't have secure work, they're not very well paid, you Mm -hmm. know, you get like 30 grand a year. Mm, Yeah. Um, And so this is... You know, but having said that, even though we're in this situation, we still enjoy, you know, presenting our ideas and hearing from other people course, and that kind of thing. Yeah. But often conferences are $500 a pop or something. Mm. And so they're very... And how much do they pay their keynotes? Well, that, uh, yeah, I did hear there was one they charged them 10000 I only heard that anecdotally. I haven't fact-checked these, that. And but... these are people that are tenured academics yeah. on it over $100,000. Yeah, usually 200 k 300 k whatever. Yeah, wow. So, yeah, the money's going to the wrong people and those at the bottom can't even afford I mean, to attend. So you want 30000 I assume you have no qualifications. Oh, wait, you've got a PhD. Uh, sure. Yeah, that's that's capitalism for you. <laughs> so, yeah, there is issues of accessibility for academics, uh, but also for activists as well. It's like if you're charging $500 for an academic conference, it's like why and how can ac- mm. ac- like academ- ac- activists sorry, come along to that kind of thing? Whereas this was a free event, so I, I saw some people I knew who were activists who were there to kind of learn from that's these great. ideas. And so that's a key part of you know just general critical animal studies is the idea of learning from and with activists. Yeah. So this idea of like our ideas aren't separate in, in academia but like hopefully our ideas what we learn uh, and what we you know have that time to do that research hopefully that can be of use for activists and you're connecting it to something practical because mm. I know for you mm. Um, you hate the idea of these academics kind of locks in an ivory tower and just talking mm. about theory all day yeah but that you can connect it your your own um, you know work is very much based in like activists and practical things, but that yep. you can have that connection that they can work together is really good. Exactly, and also academics learning from activists as well. So the idea that again we're not in our ivory tower, which I haven't been given the keys to myself, um, so <laughs> I don't spend too much time at universities. But um, yeah, like the idea that we can learn stuff. So it's really great to have them, you know, coming along and giving their ideas and how our ideas relates to our, their activism and re- mm. refining our ideas. And and that kind of thing as well. And so I just, yeah. just just for background, like I said, I mentioned I'm not an academic, but I've been an animal rights activist, you know, for as long as I've been uh, vegan, so ten years. Mm-hmm. And Nick and I ran an animal rights organization in Perth together. So I'm very much coming from the non academic um but the but the activist space and it's really good to see how these connections are being built. Yeah, so we're going to, yeah, we'll play Esther's talk. We're going to start off with that first and make sure we can fit it in. And then, yeah, for the rest of the episode, we're going to, um, yeah, have a bit of, um, yeah, a bit of an overview of the conference. So we're going to start off with a track, and this is actually from... 
Yeah, from the band A Local Resident Failure. And I thought it was quite relevant in that it's about nationalism in Australia, but it also brings in animals as well. So talking about um, vegetarianism, this song is from 2012. So maybe this band or the singer has gone on to become vegan, how we yeah. hope. But it's still quite interesting, this uh, song about nationalism and, and critical Australia, but also brings in yeah is- issues around animals as well. So the song is Where the Bloody Hell Are You? And yeah, they're yeah Australian punk band. They do have an Indigenous singer, which is quite rare in the punk scene. As unfortunately, very uh, white scene in a lot of cases um, but yeah it's, it's quite a good track um, it is from the album A Breath of Stale Air I did want to mention there is some swearing on this song and, and more importantly to put in a content warning there is a, a very brief mention of sexual assault as well um, but yeah let's hear this track uh, you're listening to Freedom Species on um, on 3CR Hi, I'm Romy. I'm 14 years old and I'm part of a group organising a children's march for Nauru. Kids on Nauru are not free. They are suffering very much. Join kids, youth and families on Sunday, October 21st at 11am at Birurung Ma near Fed Square to call for the freedom of refugees in detention, especially children. This is a peaceful, family-friendly event and will include children's speeches and singing. The Artist Committee is a 3CR supporter. We're going to go to Esther's talk, but before I did, I thought I wanted to give a little bit of a context, Palestine, Israel. Mm. You know, people may know a lot about this conflict. They may not know much at all. I'm sure at the very least listeners have heard that there is a conflict going on in there. Um, But I thought, yeah, there's a few terms or one term in particular which Esther uses throughout the talk which listeners may not be familiar with. So uh, Zionism. So maybe do you want to give a definition of this? Just like a dictionary definition or whatever. But yeah. So it was a movement that was originally for the re-establishment of Israel. Israel obviously being an ancient state, um, you know, mentioned the Bible. Now it's about the development and protection of a Jewish nation in what is now the modern state of Israel. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the creation of Israel, this happened after World War II in terms of Jewish people wanting a safe place for mm. good reason. The lack of um, allies willing to st- take in Jewish refugees yeah. and realising in the in the wake of the Holocaust how terrible that was. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of like understandable, but the issues with giving Israel this aid is that there was already people there, the mm. Palestinian people. In the same people. way that Australia was already populated when the... Yeah. Uh, you know, convicts came. And Esther makes that link in terms of both being colonial countries. So, yeah, there, there is that issue. And basically, since there's been that state, the, you know, Israel land has, has grown and Palestinian land has shrank over, mm. over time. Um, and, yeah, I thought, again, just to give a bit more context, here's a few points from Jewish Voices for Peace. And so they explain that there are different laws in Israel depending on people's ethnicity. So Israel still applies 20 laws that privilege Jews over Arab, over Arabs. And the 1950 Law of Return grants automatic citizenship rights to Jews from anywhere in the world upon request, but it denies the same right to Palestinians. And so the basic law of human dignity and freedom ensures that Israel is the state of the Jewish people, not its citizens. Israel's flag and other national symbols are Jewish religious symbols, not neutral or national ones that represent all the citizens of the state. And many who have suffered from apartheid in South Africa have made comparisons with Israel. For example, the ANC chairperson, Balika Matib, strongly responded, saying that she had been to Palestine herself and that the Israeli regime is not only comparable, but far worse than apartheid South Africa. And I believe that the South African government has also recognised that 
uh, there is a state of apartheid in Israel, which is quite significant. Mm-hmm. So that's just a bit of the context. And so, again, Esther's talk is going to be, um, yeah, giving some, yeah, how do animals fit into this and animal activism, all that kind of thing. Um, and I guess I just to give a bit of a, um, yeah, context, I guess, like she's been, you know, she's critical of, you know, everyone saying, yeah, Israel's so great because of the vegan thing, but also she's critical of, of the idea of like every Israeli activism is just doing it on behalf of the Israeli state as well so it's quite a nuanced argument she's been to um both israel and palestine in terms of um she's a jewish heritage mm-hmm. and a vegan yep an animal rights activist yeah so here is the talk so you may not know this but in popular and media discourse israel has made claims um to being the most animal friendly nation in the world um recently some of these claims emerged as part of um the campaign to ban um, the live trade of animals, and I'll talk about that later. But this example is actually the last example in a pretty long string of events um, that have positioned Israel as a country that cares about animals and their welfare. Um, for example, um, the country actually prides itself of banning wild animal circuses in the mid-90s and also um, national foie gras production and animal testing in the early 2000s. Um, So that's kind of part of the narrative that Israel cares a lot about animals. Lately, so around 2011-2012, you had something that many have called the vegan revolution that swept across um, Israel um, and veganism became a really widespread kind of national phenomenon. Um, You had surveys saying 8%, up to 8% of Israelis are vegan. Um, lots of media headlines talking about, you know, um, the first vegan nation. Tel Aviv was deemed the vegan capital of the world, um, hosting the world's uh, biggest vegan festival or the largest, all the hyperbole, hyperbolic things, um, the largest um, animal rights demonstration in history in 2017, according to media headlines. So I guess the point, what I'm going to do in this paper is not, I repeat, it's not, Uh, I'm not going to try and challenge the evidence for those claims. What I do is I kind of track the nationalist framings of those claims and what kind of political and cultural work they do. So this kind of rhetoric is kind of my starting point for my um, argument. And here is my argument, so you can follow me. Um, So what I argue first uh, is that this latest wave of veganism has been enrolled in Israeli nationalism and used to reinscribe um, Jewish-Israeli belonging and by extension Palestinian unbelonging in what is a highly fraught settler colonial context. That's point number one. Um, Number two, that um, the Israeli state and its institutions have co-opted veganism in in a politics of obscuring of the occupation and um, the treatment of Palestinians. So what people commonly called vegan washing. So the idea of this washing is that um, the state is using its vegan and animal-friendly reputation uh, to wash its, its dirty laundry, um, just like it's used its reputation as a gay-friendly um, nation, the only gay-friendly nation in the Middle East, something like this, um, to also kind of promote an image of being caring and exceptional and morally upright. Um, so this critique of vegan washing has already been made. You may have already heard it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Um, what I want to talk about actually in the paper is point number three and four, um, which is the idea that beneath, beneath those headlines and beneath the kind of nationalist 
framing. My research, and particularly the fieldwork that I did in Palestine and in Israel, revealed a much more complicated picture, uh, much more multi-layered kind of terrain, very ordinary and very messy ethics and politics actually going on there. And so I based this on some of the, the fieldwork that I did, a lot of interviews with um, Jewish-Israeli activists and Palestinian um, activists. And another, the last point that I will talk about in, in this paper, which is number four, and that also really came out of my fieldwork, um, is that vegan washing, right, the obsession with talking about vegan washing and critiquing vegan washing has actually made Palestinian animal advocates completely inaudible and unintelligible. And so that's why I argue that actually it's probably a good idea to start listening to Palestinians on their own terms rather than demanding that they respond to vegan washing all the time. Okay, so um, the first point I'm not really, I'm only going to address it very quickly. Um, and if you want to read more about it, you will be able to when I finish that article and when it gets published. Uh, so, <laughs> because I, this is, this is just, so it's the idea, so why am I looking at this, essentially, is this, this first part. Um, I guess um, to understand the argument that I'm presenting, it's, it's, you need to get a sense of the kind of settler colonial context that we are talking about here in, in Palestine and in Israel. So um, narratives are actually really important in general to talk about the nation. Um, but in this context in particular, and Edouard Said has, been, um, has made that point repeatedly, narratives are really important in Palestine and Israel because he argues they're the um, primary battleground for legitimacy and intelligibility of the Palestinian struggle against the hegemony of Israeli-led narratives. Um, so that's why it's important to think about how veganism is enrolled into those national um, na narratives. Uh, and what I do in that article that will come out at some point um, is showing using a bunch of evidence in terms of media and public discourse and also some interviews with, with, the, act, with the more recent vegan activists. Um, I show, I guess, how um, the cultural politics of veganism in Israel today have been um, kind of weaved in national myth of exceptionalism, which is um, something very central to the Israeli narrative and what Isra the stories that Israelis think, tell themselves about themselves, I guess. Um, and so I use a bunch of examples to show how, um, how veganism is part of this story of being a light onto the nations, is one of my um, uh, interviewee put it, which is a biblical um, expression. Uh, you know, kind of demonstrating the idea that Israel, Jews are part of the chosen people and so exceptionally moral and progressive state. So within those narratives, I guess veganism is used as a way to say Jewish Israelis belong to the settler context and Palestinians don't. Um, okay, now on to vegan washing. Um, so... With the story of vegan washings, you may have already heard that story, so I'm going to keep it quite short. The state has further appropriated um, veganism for its public relation agenda um, into this kind of politics of obscuring of, of Palestinians. Um, there are a bunch of examples. So those are, I guess, there's, yeah, there's a bunch of examples. Some of those are the most recent ones. Um, so you had organizations like Birthright Taglit Israel, um, and something called Vibe Vegan. So those organizations are partially funded um, by the Israeli state, and they've started organizing those tools of Israel, uh, fully funded 
tools for celebrity vegan bloggers in internationally, um, and also for um, this one is for Jewish youth abroad. Um, so vegan themed tour of Israel, all expenses paid. Uh, to show how um, sounds really appealing, right? Um, to show how great Israel is for vegans and how moral and caring um, Israelis are. So this is um, so you know obviously. So what what's the point of this? I guess. Um, and how is this part of this laundry politics, as, I, as I've called it? Um, I guess like pinkwashing, which is the use of gay rights um, previously and ongoingly by Israel, this, this use of veganism and animal welfare is, is a way of mapping Israeli national character onto progressive causes like LGBTQ issues and, and now animals um, to, to project this image of caring, exceptional, moral nation, but also to sideline, to gloss over um, Palestinian sovereignty, to delegitimize Palestinian sovereignty, um, and to say, you know, don't look, at, don't look at what we're doing in the occupied Palestinian territories. Look at how great we are um, about, about veganism. Um, and of course, this vegan washing narrative also um, obfuscates the ongoing violation of animal rights, right, by Israelis and, Isra and the Israeli state. It's not just of human rights. Um, okay, so this is, this is a critique that's quite, that's out there. You know, I didn't make that up. It's in activist, a lot of activist circles talk about that. My problem with it though, yes, I have problems, uh, is that it's not always clear um, in those stories who is doing the vegan washing, or rather the kind of sense that you get when you read those critiques is that all Israel, all Jewish Israelis, all of them equally, they're all implicated in this and they're all doing it. Sometimes you read this, these stories and it almost feels like the only reason Jewish Israelis are vegan is, is to do this, is to promote the Israeli nation. I mean, it sounds absurd, but sometimes it's literally almost as it, like, that's how it reads. Um, and so my point here, which is this one, um, is that it's... It's obviously a lot more complicated um, than this, and that the picture on the ground uh, is a lot murkier, um, especially for the many left-wing um, Israeli Jewish vegans that I interview, and a lot of them feel really torn about this and feel really ambivalent about the, this story of the, the vegan washing. Um, and so I thought I would show you an example. So I interviewed someone... I've use pseudonyms, um, called Etan. So Etan is a really good example of this because he was recruited by an organization called Stand With Us. Uh, it's a, you may have heard of them, they're quite, they're quite a powerful lobby in the US. They organize campaign and talks, particularly on um, US, at US universities and on campus, to, to essentially propagate the Israeli narratives that I talk about at the start. Um, and so they invited him to give talks about the Israeli vegan revolution. And he said yes, and he gave those talks. And this is when I asked him how he felt about it, and this, this is what he said. Um, so this is not really a straightforward, yeah, I'm really proud of being Israelis and I'm promoting the name of Israel by, uh, by doing those talks, right? It's like the political issues are frustrating. Of course, being a liberal Zionist is a very frustrating experience, like, because it's so contradictory, so that's really hard to reconcile. Um, but, you know, I don't know whether it was because I was there um, or because it, w because it is inherently frustrating to have to account for being a liberal Zionist, but I think the way he wrestles with his complicity in the state's vegan washing project is 
and the way he describes it here is actually um, it, it shows the, the lived experiences of many vegans that I interviewed um, in Israel. It's not at all, it's not a straightforward thing uh, that they're doing. And many of them also wrestled with um, another clear example of, of vegan washing that people have talked about, which is the Israeli military use of veganism. So again, you have the dominant narrative. Um, just as I was preparing this presentation, like literally a few days ago, this article came out in the Jerusalem Post saying, you know, Israel, the most vegan army in the world because the number of vegans in the Israeli military has skyrocketed um, and also because the, the IDF um, provides option, vegan options for its soldiers, beret, boots, food, the whole lot. Um, and so when I was in, um, in Israel in 2017, I interviewed uh, quite a high-ranking officer about this in the, one of the headquarters in Tel Aviv. And, you know, he gave me the vegan washing story. He's like, of course, the Israel, the Israel is, a, is the most vegan army in the world because we are a very moral army. Um, uh, and as evidenced by the fact that even, even, even vegans serve in the army and even vegans serve in, as fighters, as combat soldiers in the army, which actually there's not many of them. Most of the vegan soldiers that I interviewed are not in combat units. Um, they're in intelligence units, so in offices. Um, and so, okay, so this is the vegan washing story. But what I think is much more interesting, once again, is the people, right, the vegan soldiers themselves. And so I found some of them, um, and I went and I talked to them. Um, and this is some of the stuff that they say. So while, while the officer was really keen to use veganism for propaganda purposes, the soldiers had really different concerns, right? Um, they complained about really bad food. They complained about some of their beret and um, not fitting in because it was the wrong color for the unit. They complained about being bored um, in the army all the time. So they have very different concerns that, compared to the vegan washing narrative. Another thing that was interesting as well is that <clears throat> a handful of them also um, challenged the ethics of serving in the IDF, um, like um, Ronnie and Hannah. So Ronnie is um, 19 and she worked in an intelligence unit and she said, you know, she felt conflicted. She's not sure. It's complicated, right? Um, and then I also talked to Hannah, who had just been released from a similar unit. And, you know, she said, I made a mistake. I was eating animals for 19 years. That's also a mistake. And she said she wouldn't enlist. She wouldn't enlist again if, um, if she had a choice. So, um, and there were other, and she's not the only one who, like, in terms of vegan soldiers that I interviewed, who told me stuff like that. And who also kind of were drawing parallels between questioning eating animals and questioning militarism. A bunch of them made those connections, actually. Mm -hmm. And they said that they had made those connections from being immersed in the activist milieu, particularly the, the biggest animal rights organization, which is called Anonymous, which is mainly staffed by um, left-wing Israelis. Again, there's a spectrum of what left-wing means, though. They can be left-wing and Zionist. So I'm not going to get um, into this. Um, but, okay, so I just want to make the point before I move on to the, to the last point, that... I'm not arguing that these people, these vegan soldiers, are representative of anything, okay? I'm not saying it's a generalizable pattern. I'm also not saying that this is redeeming of what the IDF is doing with veganism or what the IDF is doing to Palestinians. But I do think that it's, it illustrates some of the ambivalences of Israeli animal politics that you don't hear 
in the vegan washing narratives that are completely glossed over. Um, okay, so in terms of the last point that I wanted to make, um, which is here. So I'm saying, you know, vegan washing is happening. Beneath this vegan washing, there's a lot of ambivalence and complicity and people who are wrestling with where they live and what, and what they do. Um, and the last thing that I want to say about vegan washing and the critiques of vegan washing is that as it comes to kind of saturate the discourse, the discursive space about animal politics in Israel and in Palestine, um, I'm arguing that vegan washing establishes like a dominant script which actually distracts from what Palestinian animal activists want to do and want to say. And again, as I mentioned, <clears throat> this became really apparent from spending time with um, Palestinian animal activists in 2017 and this year again. So essentially I'm saying that activists from PAL, so the Palestinian Animal League, which is um, the only animal advocacy organization in the occupied West Bank, they have had to fight vegan washing on its terms. And those terms are Israeli terms, right? Israel, Israeli nationalism, Israeli terms. So they didn't choose those terms, and so as a result, they've, they've kind of had really mixed results with, with how they do this. And they're also really frustrated. Um, and this kind, of shows, this, this kind of showed up when I interviewed Ahmed, um, who is the director of PAL. Um, so when I asked him about veganism in the military, this is what he said. And he was really, you know, his body language was like, why are you asking me this? I'm tired of answering those questions, like literally. Isn't it obvious? And I mean, he has really good reasons because um, Ahmed lives in Jalazon, which is a refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. And um, there are you know, weekly incursions in that camp by the Israeli military. Um, his family, his friends have been targeted by Israelis. He has bullet scars on him. You know, why are you asking me about vegan bele and whatever? <laughs> so of, of course he's frustrated. <clears throat> but beyond this, I think, um, when, I when, when we concluded the interview, he kind of said, what did he say? I've got the quote here. He said, um, there's a lot of work for animal rights. It's not only about turning vegan. That's how you kind of finish the interview and this topic. And so I think this highlights that um, he felt that when he's not talking about veganism and when he's not responding to vegan washing, he feels that people are not listening to him or to his organization. So I think this, this kind of suggests the limits of have, having to use the vegan washing script as the basis for the organization's work is, is not working because that's not what they want to talk about. Um, that became really, really apparent when um, I attended the conference that um, PAL organized, I'm almost done, um, <laughs> organized in the West Bank this year. Um, this frustration of like, having to use the vegan washing script because so when I was there, I learned that um, Sutfa, which is the a vegan cafeteria that PAL had um, created in Jerusalem, in Abudis, which is right next to Jerusalem, um, which was partially funded by Animals Australia. Um, that cafeteria closed down uh, after about a year of operating because of a lack of business. Um, and also when I was speaking to the volunteers from PAL, it became really obvious that veganism is not at the core of their animal activism and it's not their top priority. Um, and yet at the same time, the people who attended the conference, the international animal activists who were there, that's what they expected to see, right? One of them commented to me, oh, I haven't seen yet the Palestinian vegan movement 
that I came to the West Bank to see. Where is it? And, and, and I'm not discounting that. Like, I think she made this... this ooh, see, that's... I'm done. Um, <laughs> she made this comment in really good faith, right? Like, she, she knew the vegan washing. She knew about vegan washing. She knew the critique of vegan washing. And yet, she still bought into the script, right? So I think that this, is, this, this illustrates my point that um, it's, it's crowding the space in a way that Palestinians then can't express themselves. So then what I'm saying is, you know, the politics of listening is long overdue um, and that, you know, this is where they are speaking from. We can say all day long that we only, as Fiona was saying, we're only talking about animals. We don't want to talk about humans. Well, they live on, behind the wall of shame and this is, this is where they are. So we need to engage with where they are and we need to listen to what they're saying. Um, and interestingly, yeah, I'm finishing. If we were to listen, um, if we were to actually take up this idea of listening, um, we would find stuff that kind of, I guess, responds a little bit to what Nick is saying. Because PAL, in their activism, um, they offer a version of animal activism that's, that is kind of anti-colonial, but also that expands the Palestinian national agenda. It is, it is framed within the national self-determination kind of agenda. Um, so that's interesting in terms of what it means for animals and nationalism. But also there are other animal activists um, who don't frame their animal activism um, in the West Bank along any line, uh, along the nation's line, whether Israeli or Palestinians. And they're really troubling, these people, and they're really interesting. And I will tell you that story another time. <laughs> Thank you. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. 3CR's Radical Radio book is now on sale for just $30. You can get your copy of 3CR's book at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. On sale for just $30. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Hopefully you enjoyed that talk from Esther Lown from the University of Wollongong and we will put a link up in the show notes at freedomofspecies.org with links to more of Esther's work if you'd like to read some of her articles looking at animal activism in Palestine, Israel. We're going to take a track now on the topic of um, yeah Palestine, Israel, etc. This conflict and the sort of the more human conflict, I guess. So this is by the hip-hop artist Loki. Uh, the track is Long Live Palestine and you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. This is for the child that is searching for an answer Wish I could take your tears and replace them with laughter Long live Palestine, long live Gaza Palestine, Ramallah, West Bank, Gaza This is for the child that is searching for an answer You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR and we've been discussing the Animal Nationalisms Conference that held, took place last Friday and yeah, we've heard, heard a talk from Esther Lown and in this last little bit, I'm just going to give some, yeah, some little points from the conference, some, particularly some take-home messages for animal activists. So that it will Can be I just focus. say great song choice too? Thank you. I yeah. mean, you are probably Loki's biggest fan. Probably. I think I've heard Loki over and over and over <laughs> again when you play him at home, but he is... He is amazing, and that song is really awesome. Yeah, definitely. 
So I want to start off with Fiona Proben Rapsi's talk, and she was on Freedom of Species not too long ago discussing dingoes, which was her talk, yeah, her topic, and how issues around nationalism and racism are projected onto the dingo. And yeah, she goes through the concept of banal nationalism, which is called, which is basically more subtle forms of racism. Banal. Uh, banal racism. Banal. Okay. Banal. Uh, yeah. Banal nationalism. Sorry. Yeah. But she argued that's that, like boring, Nick. That's what that means. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, but she argued that it's not benign, but insidious and dangerous. So because it's banal. subtle, yeah, 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 no, but it's not benign. It's not benign, she said. Okay, so she was. says banal and benign. Sorry, yeah, mm-hmm. go on. And she linked this to the idea of dog whistling, um, which which is also kind of linked to animals. That term in itself, but dog whistling is basically it's often racism, but with a plausible deniability. She says. So an example of this is like I'm not a racist, but so it's like mm. kind of like oh, no, I'm not saying I'm not racist. I'm actually saying this. Mm. Um, so yeah, you can deny that. Yeah, I wasn't saying this, which is racist. I'm saying this that wasn't racist but it's still kind of reaching out to the right people yeah, like yeah. again like the oh i don't know concerned about african gangs i'm not actually being racist i'm just concerned about crime Too or whatever scared to go out at night yeah in the top five <laughs> safest city in the world melbourne no one's going out to restaurants yeah yeah and just in terms of linking this to animals i was kind of thinking about that a lot of animal campaigns often these campaigns can have this sort of banal nationalism in them or, or even racism uh, more subtle in subtle ways. So it's focusing on non-Western exploitation but not using blatantly racist terms mm. or whatever. But then on group's Facebook page, they get these really racist comments. Mm. Like, But why, like, why is this? Japan, we- F off with our whales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, but we're not focusing on that. We're, fo- we're just concerned about animals. Yeah. And I was kind of thinking about that. It's like, yeah, even though it's good these groups aren't often using the really blatant racism, in a way they maybe shouldn't be surprised that they get these comments totally on the page be because it's sort of built into a lot of these campaigns. Yeah, you know, in the same way Trump shouldn't be surprised that Nazis come out and support him. Yeah, because he's... You're used- not saying those words that they might use. Yeah. But basically you're signal, um, singling out a, a, a particular group that's not Australian mm-hmm. And saying that the way they treat animals is terrible. Yeah. Exactly. And not talking about Australian slaughterhouses. Exactly. So Colin Salter, who's uh, spoken at Critical Animal Studies conferences a bunch before, spoke about the way in which we often in animal cam- animal campaigns speak about non-Western exploitation, uh, animal exploitation and harm to animals as exceptional, mm. as different to or significantly worse than non-Western exploitation. And his argument is basically we should stop focusing on the exception mm. and focus on the rules. So he spoke about the um, dolphin slaughter, which is in Taji, which is obviously horrible for, yeah, for those individuals. I'm always surprised when vegans tell me, oh, God, have you seen the dolphin slaughter documentary? It's yeah. horrific. I'm thinking, yes, but 99% of animals are killed in food production. And what happens yeah. in food production here in Australia and in every slaughterhouse is horrible. I mean, it's in the word, right? Mm-hmm. Slaughterhouse. Yeah, exactly. And so he, yeah, he, he compared that number of dolphins slaughtered to the number of cows slaughtered within the same period. Mm. And so it's like, why don't we focus on that? We focus mm. on the, 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 the rule, not the exception. And so mm. I thought that was an interesting point. In like how of- many, it's, it's billions mm-hmm. of, of animals that are killed in food production every year. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, how many, I think I know the American number is that... 56 billion or something 56 like billion? that, I believe, off the yeah. top of my head. But yeah. Um, yeah, and also, you know, notions of nationalism 56 and... 56 billion. Mm. Is that the US or worldwide? I believe that's US, but I don't want to give figures. I could be no, wrong. No, 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 because yeah. I think, like, it was, like, um, conservatively estimated at 10 billion, but then mm. they often don't take into account sea life, yeah, yeah. which brings that number significantly up. So yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it is 56 billion. Mm. In any case, billions of animals killed every year, mm-hmm. and no one 
you know, it's it's normal. It's mainstream. No one bats an eyelid. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, again, focusing on the, the rule rather than the exception. Um, and also, yeah, another point in terms of how um, racism and nationalism get projected, and particularly racism in this case, is that uh, so dingoes and, like, wild dogs, there's that mm. sort of thing. And, and so often, you know, a dog will, you know, get away from a farm and, like, mate with a dingo. And so they have, like, hybridized, like, offspring and there's the idea out there in like from hunters but also even conservationists that we should actually kill their pups for the protection of their mother for example who's a dingo okay because we want to prevent hybridization and maintain the purity of their species that's so weird and it, it's very messed up yeah you know, so. people concerns concerned about purity of species like dog breeding mm. but they were talking about wild animals mm-hmm. and of course everyone's been mixing yeah throughout history i mean you know us as you know we're predominantly homo sapiens but a lot of us have neanderthal in us exactly and and there's so many parallels with racism so there's you know there's measurements there's even blood quantums and all this stuff in terms they measure how a a, a pure dingo in inverted commas sounds like um eugenics basically yeah exactly applied to animals and and basically she argued a lot of the discussion is about you know mourning this loss of dingo purity Mm. rather than actually challenging this very notion of purity and yeah there's you know and often people also label them as wild dog because we can kill a wild dog not a dingo yeah Um, but queensland for example decided that all all, they're all wild dogs none of them are dingoes to justify killing them basically oh okay i thought you were saying to just kind of make it more inclusive no no to justify killing killing because you can kill a wild dog but you can't kill a dingo Mm. and so she argued that this purity discussion is quite ridiculous and yeah we should just focus on challenging this purity idea rather than maintaining some purity which probably never really existed anyway and hybridate hybridization yeah occurs all the time anyway um of course is anyone concerned about maintaining pure homo sapiens by the way well exactly and she looked at the language should we go and kill those of us who have neanderthal dna yeah because there's there's the purity of the Homo sapien must be maintained. Yeah. Well, she looked at the quotes in terms of how people speak about dingoes, and yeah, there's some pretty direct parallels to racial concerns about interracial marriage and all these kind of mm. things as well. So, oh yeah, but most people don't know that we are a mixed species in itself. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not pure Homo sapiens. We're mixed with Neanderthal and others. Like people alive today. Yeah. They don't think about that. No. Uh, there was another great, um, yeah, great talk. Um, sorry, if you want to hear more from Fiona, that, that was a great talk, but if you want to hear more from Fiona, you can hear it on the 12th of June 2018 episode of Freedom of Species. The episode was called Why Are We Killing Our, Our Dingoes? And you can listen to that and all our episodes at freedomofspecies.org and on iTunes. So, yeah, if you want to hear more about the dingo topic, that was a really great episode people can check out. Um, I also wanted to touch on uh, Paula Akaria's talk as well. So uh, Paula mentioned that animal use is so entangled with economics, politics, and importantly, social connections, which are often overlooked by animal advocates. And that's obviously not to say just because the people around you are eating animals, therefore it's acceptable, but it probably is a, um, it is a concern maybe we don't address, easy, don't address enough. We just say mm-hmm. it's easy to be vegan without looking at that social. And I know, you know you've been an animal advocate for a long time. Do you have any ideas on how, how animal advocates can overcome this uh, social barrier to veganism? Mm. So I guess is that saying that when you go out to eat with friends yeah. or go to someone's house for dinner? Or even like your family's cook, cook this meal and that's the family tradition. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm a white person, so I'm not really going to go into the, the cultural aspects that I know some people might talk about. Yeah, I'm not so much talking about but it's your culture. Socially, yeah, people around socially, you, your parents. Uh, you know, when I went vegan, I was living at home with my parents who aren't vegan. And that was that was hard for me because I want to go home, open the fridge and eat whatever I want. Mm. Um, you go home and the bread rolls have milk solids in them. Uh, and then 
you know, when I, I moved out of home not that long after that, lived in a vegan house, I can eat whatever I want in the fridge. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, you have a craving for something, eventually you can go and get it somehow. Mm-hmm. Or you just give that up. It's, it's no big deal. I think in terms of, um, you know, socially, veganism can be made really easy. So I remember um, we would go to our friend's house and um, she would just say, I don't know what to feed you. And I was like, well, why don't you make a stir fry and you can put meat in yours if you want to have meat. Mm. I'm talking about people who would not like, mm-hmm. who kind of can't go without meat, right? Um, she's like, okay, cool. Like I'll make up a stir fry. Um, and, you know, it, it's all about educating people about it and that things are actually quite easy. When I go and eat out with friends, I look up a restaurant on Happy Cow, which will tell you the vegan friendly and vegan restaurants in the area. So I went out with some friends too. I was like, I looked up the places on there that were nearby. I said, what do you all feel like? Do you feel like some ramen, some Thai, some Mexican? They were like, let's go for ramen. Went to this ramen place that has a vegan option. And it was just as easy. Mm. They ordered their uh, food. I ordered mine. And it's actually quite easy to eat out. Like in nearly every restaurant, there are a couple of exceptions, but it's always going to be easy if you go to um, Indian, Asian, um, except if it's kind of super westernized Asian where they don't mm. think like to- they have to have meat and everything. They don't put tofu and things. Um, Italian is usually really easy because you get, you know, pizza without cheese or um, uh a lot of they, they often have at least one pasta that's not handmade with egg so i mean I, for me it, it's it's very easy going out there'd be a tiny number of, of restaurants where i could couldn't turn up and get a, a good vegan a decent vegan meal uh and i mean so i i think it's i think it's easy and i think if you have a positive attitude towards it it also helps um but then again i i did an internship in in geneva in switzerland and i was staying at this student accommodation and i'd share a kitchen with 130 people and there's people from all over the world so for some some people there from their backgrounds uh it's very normal to kind of bring a slab of animal and chop it um a massive slab with bone and everything which uh you know in in australia we wouldn't see so much but in some cultures you know you go and you get this part of this dead animal and you hack it up um and i remember being in the kitchen and the bone flex hitting me in the face and thinking jesus like this is too much for me and that was um you know i wasn't around any vegans uh and i had to cook for myself and i had geneva is not the most vegan friendly city uh so there are going to be degrees but especially if you're at you know in your home and you you know you you get you, you get your vegan cheese, you get your, your almond milk, you kind of, you have a good setup. So, I mean, what I did in that case was just reach out to vegans online and just have a rant to them because I was quite distressed and I was quite isolated in general. I didn't have friends. I was, I was doing this internship. I was living in Geneva alone. So that to me helped. But I think if you're set up and organized, you're fine. If you use things like Happy Cow and especially in Melbourne and Nam. So easy, mm. so easy. And I did want to add as well, I think also, yeah, in terms of creating vegan social groups, whether that's online or in person, also, yeah, people might have traditional family recipes. Can you modify those exact same recipes and use like Nutflex vegan margarine rather than using butter, those kind mm. of things. So you can so actually- So my mum, she was like, I really want to make you mac and cheese. Yeah. I really want to make you mac and cheese. Yep. And I was like, well, here's a great vegan mac and cheese. She was like, great. Mm. She really wanted to make that dish for me. Or, mm. um, you know, like I said, I'm white. I'm not going to speak- uh, for others, but our one of our friends who's Maori, 
and he went vegan and a lot of traditional Maori food has has sea animals in it. And so mm. he was just using mock um, mock meats, mm. like mock fish, mock prawns, etc., to make those dishes. Yeah, the traditional Maori dishes. So, yeah, we are um, we are out of time. There's, um, yeah, a lot more we could discuss from that conference, but I think we'll cover that another time. Adam, um, yeah, the co-host, can't, couldn't be here today, gave a really great talk, and I'd love to hear or love to get those ideas out for the show another time as well. So we might return to some of these topics. Um, yeah, really interesting discussions. And, yeah, I think uh, a lot of them are relevant activists as well i just wanted to give one quick plug for tamil feast so they have a vegan night every month this is supporting recently settled asylum seekers through the celebration of food and culture so they make traditional tamil food it's all vegan um yeah once once a month there's a vegan night all vegans the next one is thursday the 18th of october at 7 p.m um it's at sarah's the environmental center which is at stewart street and robert street in runswick east and basically the vegan feast is 30 bucks it's uh three courses of traditional Tamil vegan fare, an entree, plate with curry, dal, salads, chutney, and dessert. You can get more information on the Tamil Feast um, at uh, by searching Tamil Feast on Facebook or you can go to tamilfeast.seres.org.au. And yeah, I think that's a really great one. We've talked a lot about connections between human and animal issues, like supporting these uh, refugees as well as eating some good vegan food as well. Um, and yeah, also, if you'd like to find out more about DCAS, so again, if you're at Deacon, but also if you may be an activist who'd like to come along to those events, you can go to deacon.edu.au and follow the links. That might be a bit difficult to get through but we'll make sure we put a link up in the show notes at freedomofspecies.org uh, so yeah you can find all our episodes there you can find all our episodes on itunes as well if you have any feedback for the show um, contact us at info at freedomofspecies.org and also contact us on Facebook or Twitter and I should mention very quickly before we get out of here World Vegan Day is today until 6pm that's right it's on at, right now at Melbourne Showgrounds wvd.org.au we better get out of here and Psychedelia is next so make sure you stay tuned to that you've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne Australia For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.